Welcome to the conference room with this week's guest, Laura Belmain. But the first thing that we do in our interviews before we look at your skills at all is try and understand you as a person. Welcome to The Conference Room, a weekly podcast where business leaders and growth experts kindly share their experiences, actionable tips and secrets to successfully grow a business. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help us out. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to The Conference Room. Good afternoon and welcome to The Conference Room. I'm joined today by Laura Belmain. Laura is the CEO of cybersecurity vendor SafeStack. Uh, born and raised in the UK, she moved to New Zealand in 2011 and specializes in securing some of the world's fastest growing organizations, having taken SafeStack to over 65 countries. She's over 20 years of experience in software development and information security, and it's her mission and her passion to bring security into organizations of every shape and size. And I'm delighted that she's come into the conference room to talk all about it. So Laura Belmain, good afternoon, and welcome to the conference room. Thank you so much for having me. I, I need to employ you to do all my intros, because uh, short of some theme music, that was stunning. Let's, let's do more of that. Thank you very much. Well, you are the hero of our story, and every story has an origin. So. How did you get from starting out to now in the other part of the other side of the world being the CEO of SafeStack? Uh, I, you know, I'd love to say I have one of those origin stories where I had a right, I went to the right school and had this plan. And since I was three, I knew I wanted to no, that's not true. Um, age 16, I wanted to be Ali McBeal from the lawyer show of that period of time, or Scully from the X-Files. Um, but things, life happens. And um, for various reasons, I needed to get a job. And I found myself as an apprentice software developer in COBOL, age 16. And I've sort of been on a bit of a wandering journey ever since, um, having worked for CERN in Switzerland on radiation monitoring software, uh, doing government intelligence work and counterterrorism. Uh, but they've always kind of joined these things together, building amazing software, and then in the later stage, then figuring out how to keep that safe. And in about 2011, I'd been doing that serious counterterrorism thing for a very long time. And I was like, oh, really should go and slow down, do something fun. And I thought I will go to New Zealand for six weeks and just have a bit of a working holiday. And that was 12 years ago. So now I'm here um, and building a global empire, if you will, from one of the tiniest countries on Earth. Wow. So what, what was it that took you to New Zealand in the first place? Uh, I raced the visa systems between Canada and New Zealand. I wanted somewhere that was friendly, that didn't have a lot of bitey, stingy, poisonous things, um, and that had a lot of coastline and lovely ocean and stuff, because I, I love doing water stuff. And uh, New Zealand's visa system was super quick at the time. And so from the January, I had my visa in, and it was all sorted by the April. So, yeah, um, essentially, I was just impatient. Wow. So having moved to New Zealand, um, from then, what was the journey from being in New Zealand and realising, OK, I ain't on holiday anymore, to then actually forming uh, SafeStack and the journey that that took? Yeah, I. so the first three years I was over here, I was primarily a consultant and a penetration tester. 
Um, so helping dev teams on the tools, um, working with their dev lifecycle. And at that three-year mark, I had my first child, um, a little girl, Lily. And I think something about having a baby made me lose my patience with things not working. And so I came back to work and I was running the AppSec team for a payments company. And on paper, it was the perfect job. But what I found was that we were still seeing the same problems in software that we'd been seeing for 15 years. And so I kind of made the bold or stupid choice, whichever you prefer, to start my own thing. And I started a small consultancy in 2014. And my mission at that point was to prove that you could do security in a software development lifecycle without it getting in the way. In fact, I wanted to take it a step further. I wanted to use it as part of growth and innovation. So off I went. Um, with, I literally wheeled my little home office chair down the street in central Auckland uh, to a cheap shared office space that didn't even have sanded desks. And um, I started literally walking to small companies and going, hey, I can do a thing and seeing if they wanted some help. So, so here we are. So as I understand it, um, SafeStack is a, a product company. Okay. Yeah. So there are lots of, of companies there are lots of companies that start out as a services company and then productize their offering by mm. uh, creating software that can kind of do it so to all intents and purposes. Um, and many, many, many companies fail, okay? They don't manage to successfully productize their services and create software that can do it. You clearly have because 65 countries can't all be wrong. So how did you go about, what was the, what were the, if you can walk me through the steps that you took mm. from we provide services we're building by the hour or by mm. week or whatever to um, creating and then selling a software product, okay? How did yeah. you, how did that evolution take place? Yeah, I'd, it like most things, it was quite a, a natural ev evolution. Now, there was a big inflection point in COVID that I'll come back to. But before all of that, um, I, I'd known for a very long time I wanted to do a product. Um, consultancy is great fun. You meet some amazing people. You experience so many environments, but it doesn't scale. And I am quite mission driven. I always have been. That's why I did intelligence work back in the day. And I wanted to know that any organization, regardless of whether they were big with deep pockets or small, they could all do some security and they could all have access to the knowledge and skills they needed to be safe. And so I did my first attempt at a product in 2017. It was an absolute train wreck. It was Frankenstein's monster of software. We had a few very loyal, but very small customers. Um, and I learned a lot, but it wasn't the right time and I wasn't the right person at that point. And then COVID hit. And in 2020, New Zealand went into lockdown uh, and we had quite aggressive lockdowns. And at that point, the, the small consultancy, there was four of us, um, all women, all with kids and home loans and all those kind of things. And we dropped 94% of our revenue overnight. And so we sat around having a little bit of a, you know, cry. a virtual cup of tea. Yeah, and a cry. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, with quite a few tears at that point. And we were like, look, we can we can do that thing. You know, you go to the pub, have a pint, wait for it all to blow over. Um, or you, we could do something bold. And so we thought, well, we know how to do what we're doing. We know how to put security through a software development lifecycle. We know what goes wrong, what, what goes right. We've done it all over the world, big and small. So we decided to build a platform that would help give those skills to companies all around the world. We started work in the April. 
we had it in market in October and um, we had, I think, our first 25 customers by the following February. And now we're in 860 something organizations in 65 countries, ranging from teeny tiny nonprofits um, right the way through to national level banks and airlines. So it's been quite the adventure. Wow. Okay. Let's dig into that a bit more because that's fascinating. Okay. So um, what I'm really curious about is so you've built a product. Okay. Mm I'm curious as to at what point you start talking to customers. Um, are you talking to them at the very, very beginning of, hey, guys, we're going to build this product. What input can you give us? Okay. And then from then, how you establish market fit. And then from then, how you actually get those alpha, beta customers. So talk me through, if you can, the the process that you went through and how much of it you kind of knew, how much of it you guessed, how much of it was, you know, foresight, how much of it was, you know, the luck of the fool, right? Um, because, hey, that's how most of my success has been. Um, and um, how you actually got from, okay, we've got this product, let's start making phone calls, to starting to be taken seriously by, like you say, banks and airlines that obviously have to yeah. have an incredible due diligence when it comes to this sort of thing. So talk me through that, if you will. Sure, absolutely. Now, this is where pivoting from a service company to a product company um actually turned out in those early months to be a superpower now we don't do any services anymore we about 18 months ago they got shifted out to a separate company they're doing great but so we are now purely product but at that point we'd had many years of relationships with organizations we knew had problems so you kind of we had this already this little data bank of things we've seen and things we hadn't seen and what had worked and what hadn't and we had a whole bunch of people who trusted us enough that we could pick up a phone and go hi i'm gonna try and do something uh, to be honest, I said dumb in no, a number of these conversations because they were quite good friends. I'm about to do something dumb. Can I run a few things past you? And so we just, you know, we did some very, what we now know is is product validation. But at the time, it was just, you know, is my gut right on this or am I, you know, just kind of validating what we were feeling was out there. Um, the first customers, some of them came via previous consulting customers. So that was nice. But very early in the piece, what we discovered is there's a factor to our audience we hadn't really understood, and that's the community nature of the software development community. They do not want to be sold to. They do not want to be marketed to. They want to form their own decisions and adopt products that suit their needs, but without this kind of game that we play in sales and marketing. And that's really hard when you're trying to sell. Um, so in those first few months, we started getting our first referral customers. So initial customers through the door had contacted other people in back channels we didn't know existed and said, hey, this is new thing and we're trying it out and you should come and give it a go too. And so we started to really understand the power of that network. We also started to realize very early on that it was an international problem and not just a local one. A lot of the guidance we were given, you know, as somebody who'd never been a product CEO before, off I went and, you know, tried to find some mentors and went to a lot of workshops and read a lot of blog posts. And all of the playbooks say, you know, pick one territory and, you know, just go for that and go stage by stage and lots of validation. And within two months, we had five countries in the mix. And we were like, oh, hang on, wait, what? Um, so we really needed to adapt. Every time we, we got this data, every time something happened, we were adapting and learning. Now, I'd love to say that we knew what we were doing. That would not be true. But what we did come with this is this spirit of that failure was just part of it. Mm-hmm. And... 
So as a team, we've got our egos are pretty small, if I'm completely honest. We we learn a lot, lot, we laugh a lot. One of the first Slack channels we created as a product company was Today I Learned, which was all of the things we'd failed at today. And everyone shares, uh, right the way up to me as CEO, um, because it's, it's the best way for us to kind of embrace the surreal nature of growing something internationally with a remote group of people and no real kind of experience having done it before. So the people that became that first team, were they all from the consulting business? Uh, so the, there were four of us in the consulting business at the point of the pivot, and they all stayed and are all still here. Okay. Um, and the rest have come from all over the place. Um, we're remote, so we hire the right people wherever they are. Um, and we've got people in 17 cities now across New Zealand and Australia. Um, very you know, Other than our subject matter experts, they've come from a variety of fields and backgrounds. So it's it's really a diverse set of experiences we've brought together. So how do you... How do you find the right people i mean when you're talking about um a startup finding those initial key people is absolutely pivotal i mean it's it, it can be the difference between success and failure whereas <laughs> yeah ibm gets the wrong guy okay it's, it's not really going to move the needle right so what steps did you take and i'm guessing this is still during covid when you mm. um and like you say new zealand's covid um restrictions were were, were pretty severe how did you validate that the people you were bringing in were in fact the right people in all honesty i screwed it up a number of times in those first few hires um i've made i'd, I'd say probably four bad hires in, in the first two years and when i say bad i don't mean bad people yeah yeah absolutely it was you yourself simon um i was just too polite to mention it um they're not bad people, so let me clarify, but they weren't a good fit. Now, um, initially, I did what every founder does. And I was like, okay, who do I know? Who are my friends? Who can I hire? And you go, you know, you tap your network. But what I found was my network was all security folk, and I love my folk dearly. But we're not necessarily the right people to build a product company. And so some of the expertise that I needed, you know, they were coming from organizations that had $120,000 minimum contract size. They were selling to giant organizations. And that's not our world. We're product-led growth. We have no minimum seat size. Our smallest customer is like $300. And our biggest is over half a million. And, you know, so it's a huge gap from where my natural circle of friends was. Um, and so I, I learned very quickly that just because I knew someone and liked them as a person, it didn't mean they were the right fit for the company and what we needed. And so I started branching further afield. Now we do our, our advertising very broadly, intentionally, um, and not just through friendship channels. And the most important thing we put in place was the cultural fit check. So we have a whole range of roles because we have a lot to do. Um, but the first thing that we do in our interviews before we look at your skills at all is try and understand you as a person. Not that you have to be the same as us. None of us are the same. You know, our youngest person is 18. Our eldest is 55. We like all sorts of things from comic books to we've got some gym people who are like crazy fit and run ultra marathons. That's not me, by the way. Um, uh, we're a really diverse bunch, but we share values and we share the ability to be open in our communication, to give and receive feedback, uh, to use data to back up decisions, to handle conflict. So those things, in all honesty, have been more important to us than the lived experience in role uh, in these first few years, because we can teach a lot of things. 
somebody could bring skills and experience we need, but if they're a bad cultural fit, it, it causes pain. The other thing is hiring people from really late stage companies for us has been really dangerous. So if your company is, you know, already at $100 million revenue, fantastic, fantastic. But the team you're running now has resources and playbooks and structures that weren't there when they were a much smaller company. And sometimes you forget that someone at some point had to build all of that. And so we hired a couple of people who were from much later stage companies because we we're like, yeah, they've got amazing experience. And they have. But their experience isn't necessarily in navigating the chaos of the early stage and creating the structures that make that early stage into something that's repeatable and scalable later. Yeah, you know what? We had a similar thing here at Salisi where a few years ago we hired um, one of the lead recruiters from, I'm not going to say the name, but let's just say a world-leading search engine company. And mm. um, he was amazing. He was absolutely amazing. Um but spectacularly failed when he worked for us, spectacularly. And and it was, again, it was because I think we were so seduced, for want of a better term, or blinded by the fact that he'd had all this incredible success at that particular search engine company, um, that we didn't, we didn't, I think, take enough notice of the fact that there, every, all the tools were there at his disposal. All of the processes were there. And what we basically wanted to do was have someone that could really, yeah, part, you know, participate in us building something. And it, it was a very, very, very quick realisation this wasn't mm. And, uh, yeah, I think that was probably, uh, for me, um, my biggest hiring error. Uh, and it's interesting that, you know, you, you have uh, a, an almost identical experience absolutely and i think the realization came very quickly on both sides like we we know in safe stack that all employment relationships have a beginning a meaning middle and an end you know they might go on to amazing adventures next that's cool we're not gonna you know avoid the fact that will happen one day but if in that beginning you you know you're kind of finding your feet and realizing both of you are uncomfortable not getting what you're needing then you you've really got to act on that because as much as that great experience could be amazing later on, if you don't deal with this now, you're not going to get to that stage. So, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I would love to be able to jump ahead and skip the the slightly bumpy years of figuring stuff out, but when we can't do that, so we have to get the right people. No, absolutely. I remember once someone saying to me um, when it comes to, like, finding the right people um, at each stage of the company, um, it's kind of like gears in a car. Uh, for those people that have ever driven stick, um, if you put the if you put the car into the wrong gear, um, whether it's you know you, you're you're accelerating, you want to go from fourth to fifth, and you accidentally drop it into first, it's gonna really really struggle. And equally, if you're in first and you want to go into I don't know, fourth and accidentally put it into sorry, if you go if you're in first and you want to go into second, accidentally drop it into fourth, again the car's really gonna struggle. See how the same way that car needs to have the right gear yeah. at the right time. A company needs to have the right people suited to that environment at the right time. Yeah, and to extend that analogy just to its logical conclusion, you can do that once or twice and your car's going to be okay. You'll sort of revert and you'll, you'll be fine. Do it too many times, you're going to really destroy that gearbox. And what you don't want to do as a company founder is drop your engine on the floor because you persist with that sunk cost. Um, yeah, it sucks and it's expensive to replace someone, especially like New Zealand doesn't have the same employment structures as in the US. So we have to be very mindful and, and follow a lot of procedure and rules about uh, letting people go. Um, but 
it's much more expensive in the long term if you don't address that issue. Mm, yeah, no, totally, totally. So you mentioned product like growth a moment ago um, as the uh, your, um, uh, your your model, your sales model. Okay, so for people that don't that aren't familiar with product like growth, can you just explain what that is and sure. why that was the route that you took in taking the product to market? Absolutely. Now, for most of you actually at home, um, you'll be familiar with product-led growth without even realizing it. So if you're a Spotify user, for example, Spotify is an excellent example of product-led growth. They built something really cool and has a purpose, and then they open the doors for free, and there's a limited version that you can play around with for as long as you want. And then you can choose to upgrade to get additional features or, you know, in their case, no advertising. Now, in their case, they convert about 27% of their people who sign up from free convert to paid, which is a huge conversion rate. Uh, but for the rest of us, for mere mortals, um, we try and follow some of the same principles. So our audience of software engineers, software development teams, they're discerning. They want to evaluate a product themselves and understand it, and they want to do their research without talking to a salesperson before they engage. And they've done a lot of thinking, a lot of doing before they will ever talk to a person. So for us, it gives us the opportunity to offer a free version of our products. We do. We have a free plan that's open to organizations all around the world um, with no tricks, no gimmicks. You know, there's no spiky bits in there. But the idea they can come in and for as long as they need it, use a free plan. And then there's some features we provide in our paid edition that make it useful for larger organizations or more complex use cases. And so if they want to, they can insert a credit card to continue and never talk to a human. Um, you know, we love that. They love that. But. We also have a small sales team supporting the process for when somebody comes through, they're ready, they know the next step, and they want to be guided on. So it's a way of letting the consumer, albeit still a business, uh, have control of the sales flow and to uh, to kind of also be quite transparent about the product that they're receiving. So none of us like to kind of look at the box, it'll look shiny and perfect, and then once we look inside, it's a bit of a disappointment. This, in a way, is embracing transparency as a marketing vehicle and as a sales support tool. So what was it that led you to product? Was it was it always only ever going to be product like growth? Where you, you looked oh, no. No, we, we did lots of learning. So um, in the first year, so you asked me earlier, transitioning to a product company, you know, and how we got our customers, what I skirted over is the many tiers and little coaching sessions I went and embraced as at that point, I'd only been selling consultancy. And consultants, it's pretty easy to sell. If you're not a bad human being and you can talk to other human beings, you go out for a coffee, you listen to their problems, and it's much like a marriage counselor. You're there to support and understand their situation and try and help them get to the next step. And so consultancy is a very human sale product is not a very human sale. It's a very different thing and it has to scale in a different way. You can't take everyone out to coffee and listen to all of their life problems. And so I sat looking at LinkedIn Navigator, which I just learned was about to be my entire life for a few months. And I stared at, you know, this kind of massive potential market and went, where on earth do I even begin? And it was horribly overwhelming. So I, I got some bits of coaching and I started reading sales playbooks and all the books you're supposed to read. And um, we started on our outbound sales mission. Um, so we, we kind of had a couple of people in, in SDR roles, so sales development representatives, you know, calling folk. And we, we started lead generation lists. And six months in and several thousand dollars and several thousand phone calls, we'd gotten two meetings. 
it was it was a mess. We were still getting leads in, but they weren't coming from us. They were coming from recommendations that were happening out in the community or we were talking at conferences. Um, so we were like, this isn't working. So we, we went back the same way we did at the very start. And we started talking to our customers and said, hey, look, how do you buy stuff? Like when it's not someone you know, how do you buy stuff? And And what came out was a very honest, a little bit confronting picture of the development space and how it approaches tool selection and tool purchase. And, you know, to sell to an audience and to support that audience, you have to be where they are. And so uh, our PLG strategy has come from understanding what they want from a sales process and how they get recommendations, how they value products, how they do their due diligence and working with them to come towards them rather than just hoping they will adapt to more traditional ways of selling. It's fascinating because um, the more I've, 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 I mean, I've worked with a number of PLG companies and the biggest challenge that they have is being able to find the right, find the the right split between that we're giving tons of value in our free product because if we don't, no one's going to even want to use the free product and then tons more value in the paid product, okay? Yeah. To justify people stepping from free to paid, okay? So it's almost like kind of um, threading the needle in exactly Mm. the right point where, well, if we don't give enough value in the free product no one's gonna no one's gonna either stick to using it it's not gonna be sticky enough and then people aren't gonna then step up to the to the paid one but then still leaving enough um value to spare in the paid product so that when people do actually swipe the credit card the there they are seeing genuine value in that step up Mm. okay so trying to find that really you know might you know i think someone once referred to it as hitting us hitting um, shooting a bullet with a bullet. All right. So, how did you do that? I'd say it's still a work in progress. Um, we we know that people upgrade in our case not just because they want education, but because the people running the education programs have some of those pain points that you see with scaling education programs. So, things like I've got three thousand engineers; they don't all need the same set of courses. Uh, can I give them a custom pathway for their role or their seniority or which part of the business they're in? So that's one of the features that is in our paid plan. There are very simple pathways in our free one. And then for when they want that granularity for that big audience, that's the pain point there. That also then improves their reporting because they're able to do it on smaller subsets. We also offer um, our community to our paid members. So We have a community um, that is designed to help engineering teams connect with other engineering teams and say, hey, this is hard and I don't know what I'm doing. How have you solved this security problem? And you can ask questions um, anonymously so you don't have to share your company's secrets to do so. And that's really important when you're trying to tackle something that can make you vulnerable by even asking a question. So that feature and keeping it close to only the paid members of the service, that actually gives a sense of assurance and secure and you know the, the people in there are vetted you know we know them we've been through due diligence with them we know that there's no unusual actors in there because by the time they've decided to come to us and pay um you know it's a team of 300 people or 2,000 people and you know we know why they're there and what they want so we're intentionally choosing the features that give them an easier world so take some of their pain away that they don't experience when they're smaller 
Um, our free plan, the intention of it originally when it free uh, when it first launched, um, it only first came out in September last year. If we, I give you the stats for New Zealand and Australia alone, there are 759,000 small to biz- medium businesses in New Zealand, Australia. Uh, New Zealand, Australia, that's businesses up to 25 people. We're in a very small part of the world. In the US, small to biz- medium business is much bigger. Yeah. In those, nobody does any security, pretty much like less than 2%. So our free plan, any small organization can come in and do their training. They can meet the requirements for PCIDSS or whatever compliance scheme without any money. And that for us is really powerful because when we're figuring out where to focus our efforts on marketing and sales, we don't want to be focusing all our efforts on all businesses of all sizes. We want to focus on certain quality and size. So we get this wide breadth come in um, and then we're able to help people, which is nice and helps with the mission. And then we've also got a cultivation pipeline there that we can then pick out the ones that come through that are needing a little bit more. And then we can do upgrading and selling there. Right. That's fascinating. So was there a particular, I mean, what was the process that you went through to determine, right, that's going to be free, that's going to be paid? How did you actually come to the point where you had your robust you know, PLG model ironed out? I, 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 I love your turn of phrase because it makes us sound so much more professional. And I love, you know, the, the thing I'm learning about being a CEO and running a business, and it's something I share with a lot of other founders of all stages of companies, is that most of the time we don't know. We're, the success is coming from the fact that we're able to adapt and use our data and to define and refine rapidly. And that's what we've been doing. So our initial cut was, what are the minimum courses we think would provide a foundation for all organizations? So if everyone in the world got to train, what's the minimum we would teach them? And it was that set of courses. And then we looked at the features and we went, well, what's relevant to smaller organizations versus larger? And we started kind of defining things out there. Um, the other thing that we got to play with is how many seats can you have for free? Because many products will have like one free seat. Um, we don't. We have 50 free development seats and two, um, sorry, 500 free awareness seats. So at that point, we've got a really clear idea of the size and the maturity of the organizations that we're trying to support and trying to attract. And so we we meet as a, a cross team, we our PLG takes it's a cross team of engineering, success, sales, and marketing. We meet every two weeks and we look at the data and we we ask the question, what's working, what's not, and we refine. So we're able to move at quite a pace. Right. Okay. Okay. And um, and within that, do you find the 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 PLG model is uh, is still supports an enterprise play? I mean, are, are you still um because the reason why i ask is because um there was a company uh, that had a that also has a plg model um that found that because the decision to use the product was being made by the people that actually used it so the, the, the decision mm. to wasn't necessarily the same people that would decide to buy it okay particularly yeah. looking at the enterprise okay so how did you um address that to make sure that the PLG model was actually going to support an enterprise. Mm. 
So some of the first organizations we got that had a lot of seats actually came in bottom up. So they came in from an engineer that had liked it and had a play around. And then they went to the team and unbeknownst to us had been this whole conversation happened and suddenly, you know, 50 people appeared. Um, so we knew that this was something we had to support right from the very beginning. Every learner in our platform is given the same access to support as everyone else. So they, they, they're, they're quite, you know, supported when they come to want to upsell uh, or they want to get buy-in internally. We can help them with that. Um, but equally, if they just want to noodle around for six months, they're welcome to do that too. That's that's cool. We let them be. What we found, though, once we shifted into this PLG mode, one of the first ones to come through the door was a major uh, Australian bank. And they wrote us a lovely email. They're like, oh, well, we wanted to sign up for the free edition because we thought it was really cool. And then we realized we'd have to go through just as much due diligence to do the free tool as we would to pay you money. So what can we do? And so we ended up having a chat with them and they had a budget. They just never really thought about it before. So that one actually turned into kind of the whole sales process came from that PLG momentum, but then went into an enterprise sale. So they end up paying for a paid uh, proof of concept for a small number of engineers. And, um, you know, we gave them some success criteria and helped them through that like you would in any uh, POC. And that's turned into a whole organization contract. But the what's nice about it is because they found it themselves, because they were able to, if they could have been able to come in and sign up, their defenses were all automatically much lower. They'd come to us. They were like, oh, yeah, it's cool. We'd like to try this. Um, so I, I think I don't think it's perfect. I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect PLG uh, company uh, outside of Spotify. You know, folks, if you want to come talk to us, we'd well. love to talk to you. Yeah, seems um, well. Yeah, yeah it's doing pretty well. They did have a, a fairly big tailwind of a pandemic. So, you know, good good job on making the most of the conditions. Um, so I don't think there's anything perfect out there, but I think for the space we're in, we're working very hard on meeting our buyers where they are um, and respecting how they choose to purchase things. I think what's fascinating about how you've described the entire journey, if I can sum it up in one word, it's listening. You've listened yeah. from every step of the way from right at the very, very beginning when it was you know, a team of four consultants thinking, hey, let's start a product company to all of the growth that you've done at every step of the way you were listening and would you think it would be fair to say that that's been the secret to your success i don't even think it's been particularly uh, a secret um uh, one of the things i love doing most is going out and buying people a cup of coffee and a piece of cake and just listening to what their world is like there's a lot of push at the moment for example in our space to throw more tools into a developer's environment they have a tool an ide they build software in it that's where they spend most of their day and a lot of the push is to put your tool inside that. And so I was talking to some devs and, you know, took them out, went to a conference and we've had this conversation a number of times. I said, like, tell me about that. And they were like, it's horrible. Do you remember Clippy from the 90s where Clippy used to try and tell you what you were doing? But yeah, they're like, it's like that. But there's lots of them and they're always distracting us. I was like, oh, so we shouldn't spend a lot of money trying to be in your development environment. And they're like, no, nah, when we want to learn something, we know where to come. We, but learning is a separate thing from building. We don't do the same thing at the same time. And so for us, it means we don't feel the need to just follow the, the industry tailwind and go, well, everyone is doing X, so we're going to do X. We're just going to keep a mindful eye on them. That's important to know about them. But we're going to just continue to listen to our audience because they're the ones we want to support. The future of application security belongs to them, not us. 
Wow. And uh, just having a little bit of PTSD remembering Cliffy. You're welcome. Writing a letter. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, well, chat GPT will be, I'm, I'm fairly certain Clippy 2.0 is only months away. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. So what three tips would you give for somebody who wants to follow in your footsteps and, you know, start their own software company, whether it's coming from a, uh, a consulting company or just wanting to, you know, start their own startup? So I'm going to say I, I've got one tip I always give, and your audience is a, is very American. You've been in the U.S. a long time, Simon. So um, please don't take offense at this audience. I mean, it would love. Uh, one of the hardest lessons I had to learn was to stop being so, well, me, British, Kiwi, a horrible feral mix. Now, let me explain. When you're born in the U.K. and you start something silly like a company, they will take you out for a drink and they'll say, this is a terrible idea. Here's 10 ways this is going to fail. And what this creates is this entire culture where if I tell you about my new product, I, I'm pretty much going to say something like this. Hey, I built a thing. I think it's pretty cool. And it does this thing. But, you know, if you don't like it, that's cool, too. But I would like you to have a look at it. But if you don't have time, that's cool. And it's this whole weird apologetic approach. And New Zealand has the same sort of cultural baggage. And the U.S., I actually have to. Um, one of the things I've learned is to channel my inner American. So if you're already American, you've, you've got bonus points. But you're taught from a really early age how to celebrate what you've achieved and how to be proud of what you have, even if it isn't perfect yet. So don't forget that it's a superpower. Even if you're not an outgoing, I'm an introvert. Even if you're not a big extra, extroverted, like well-connected person, believe in what you're building because your belief in it is what's going to lead to the success, not whether it's a perfect product. Second thing, uh, whether you are like me and you're eatingly close to 40 and have children and, and life responsibilities or whether you're young and doing something else or you're a bit older and you're at a different stage, you cannot run from your health in all of this. Um, they say it's 10 years to be an overnight success. I thoroughly believe them. And I've seen many founders around me struggle with burnout and, and the stress and anxiety, especially in these times where there's so many layoffs and I've got pandemics and cyclones and all sorts going on. So make time, literally lock it into your calendar, even if it's just going for a walk, even if it's just going and getting some fresh air or this morning, my children um, are home from school because we've had some crazy weather here and they had a little disco to Fleetwood Mac in my living room, full blast. Um, so I stepped away for 10 minutes and just enjoyed them for a, a dance and a bit of a party. Um, be there in your life as much as you are in your company because your company needs you to be at your best game. And the only way you're there is if you're a complete and balanced person and enjoying the other things that make life important and special. Uh, finally, finance sucks. Um, the things you're going to struggle with if you're like me and you're not from a finance background, you're not an accountant, are making things uh, good, uh, making things like your metrics good. So, you know, you don't need to go and learn all of these things. There, there are no good books on it, but find somebody, an organization or a mentor that can work with you to put those structures in place really, really early. Um, so having some confidence, having an idea, rolling with it, and then don't get lost in it. And, you know, to be honest, the world is full of amazing technology and companies being built right now, and that could be you. Great stuff. So what's next for you and for SafeStack? Well, we're on a big global expansion. So we went from 25 countries to 65 in like three months. That was a bit of a, a, a journey. Um, 
So I'm going off to, uh, I'm over in the US and Canada a few times this year. So we're off to some conferences to meet community and connect with folks and, and really understand creating some partnerships because, you know, we're 21 people and we're in the wrong part of the world. So we're looking to start looking at partnerships and channels, which is another brave new world. Um, and outside of all of that, we're going to keep on staying at the very edge of what software is doing and, and talking to all these companies who are building amazing things and seeing how we can support them. Uh, so we're hoping to uh, reach some significant financial milestones this year and we're well on track. And uh, maybe we could be looking at our first US hires later this year, which is pretty exciting, stroke terrifying. Great stuff. And uh, if people wanted to reach out to you or potentially even work with you or partner with you, what's the best way for them yeah. to do that? So it's two things to do. Uh, you can find everything on our website. So safestack.io. Um, there's details of the free plan there and all of the things we offer and how to be a partner. So you can go read that. If you like reading things before you talk to humans, go nuts. It's all there. Uh, secondly, I love to talk to folks. So if you drop me an email, laura at safestack.io, um, I'm traveling quite a bit in the next year. Um, I'm coming to a city probably quite near you. Um, and what I'm trying to do is really make sure that I'm connecting with an understanding all of these amazing companies and the technology they're building um, and that we are part of and connected with that ecosystem. Um, and equally, if you know, you're know you in the, the platforms and channels and partnership space, uh, we have no idea what we're doing. Um, so, you know, we'd love to talk because uh, we'll learn a, two, uh, a thing or two, I think. That's fantastic. Laura, Laura this has been such a joy. I've, I've so much enjoyed this conversation. I've learned so much and uh, really enjoyed not just understanding about the growth of SafeStack and how you kind of formulated and grew and scaled the company, but also any conversation that includes Ali McBeal, Fleetwood Mac and Clippy. Obviously, it's a great conversation. Absolutely. Tell your friends. Endorse me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I'm here for this. <laughs> exactly. Laura <laughs> Belmain, thank you so much for coming into the conference room. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you very, very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to career CEO and investor Tom Riley. What is it that we need to do to be extremely successful? And we talk through them in great detail because you have so many things you can be doing and they all compete. Would you want to just bring it to the forefront? What are the three or four most essential strategic imperatives for us? Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com to see all the other episodes and to get access to the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your network or better still, go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. It'll only take you a moment, but it'll mean the world to us. And please don't hesitate to tell us which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To get in touch, drop us a line in the comment section or send us a message on social media. Just search for The Conference Room Podcast or me, Simon Lader, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm always open to a conversation. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when a new episode goes live every week. Thanks so much for listening to The Conference Room, and until next time, keep talking. Mm-hmm.